Welcome to Appearance Matters, the podcast, the appearance psychology podcast brought to you by the Centre for Appearance Research, a world-leading research centre based at the University of the West of England in Bristol, investigating everything related to the psychology of how we look. I'm Nadia. And I'm Jade. And in this month's episode, we will be talking about a relatively new area of work for the Centre for Appearance Research, which is appearance-altering injuries among military personnel and veterans. Right, and we're going to be hearing from military veteran Sergeant Simon Harmer and members of the unit study team here at CAR. So UNITS, by the way, stands for Understanding Needs and Interventions for the Treatment of Scarring. So that's what all the initials stand for. Also, we probably don't say this enough, but the initials for CAR, the C-A-R, is short for the Centre for Appearance Research too. A lot of initialisms that we like to use. Yeah, thanks for that, Jade. I think, yeah, we probably don't say that enough and I think people might wonder why we're talking about cars all the time. Anyway, we will introduce the UNITS team in more detail shortly, but for now, just to highlight that the UNIT study is conducted as part of the Scar Free Foundation Centre for Conflict Wound Research. Yeah, and for long-time listeners, the Scar Free Foundation may also sound familiar. That's right, Jade. Deep in the archives of the podcast, Nicholas Stock and I hear from the chief executive of the Scar Free Foundation to hear more about the foundation's aims, current projects and their launch as the Scar Free Foundation. Yeah, because, well, the reason they relaunched is because they actually changed the name, didn't they? They used to be called the Healing Foundation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I'm actually going to have to go back and listen to that one. Refresh my memory. (laughs) (laughs) If nothing else, we've created a resource for our own purposes, Jade, haven't we? Uh, But it's a good episode, so do let me know what you think. Yeah, will do. I might start listening to a bunch of them, see how we go, (laughs) see the progression. (laughs) Brilliant. Please rate and review. (laughs) We'll do five stars straight away. Fab. As a quick note and recap, the Scar Free Foundation is a medical research charity with a 15-year track record at this point of raising and investing funds for work on wound healing, burns and cleft research and has been working with CAR across a number of projects over the years. So we're really excited to talk more about this work with the Unit Study and the Scar Free Foundation Centre for Conflict Wound Research. Sounds great. Yeah, so why don't we get on straight to the episode? We've got some long interviews here. So we'll start by first hearing from Sergeant Cy Harmer. Yep, so Sergeant Simon Harmer, or Cy, as he actually prefers to be called, joined the British Army and served as a combat medical technician in Bosnia, Iraq, um, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and also Afghanistan. As he writes on his website, and, and I'm quoting... In 2009, my life changed forever and I received injuries from an explosion. So while serving on the front line in Afghanistan with one battalion, the Coldstream Guards, they're called, he sustained life-changing injuries. These resulted in one above-the-knee amputation, one below-the-knee amputation, as well as interventions to save the, the use of his right arm, So Sai was medically discharged from the British Army and today Sai is a volunteer ambassador for several service charities, a speaker, a husband and a father of three children. A lot going on there, which is great. So Sai is also on the unit study steering committee, helping to inform every step of the research process, which is really important. So I initially spoke to Sai pre-social distancing at Clifton Lido in Bristol 
which um which was amazing we had a really nice chat over breakfast about his military career and so forth um it was fun to listen back very surreal because it was busy and loud etc but then in the end we decided that there was too much background noise for the sake of the podcast so I caught up again with Simon last week on zoom and we spoke again about his military career what happened to him in 2009 and then what helped him adjust and adapt after his life changed so dramatically so I got a a, a double whammy from Sai. yeah two opportunities to speak to him so let's hear well Sai, welcome to appearance matter the podcast well thank you very much for having me today Brilliant. I've been really looking forward to speaking to you. And in fact, this is take two because we initially spoke at Clifton Lido, but the sound quality was horrific. So we are doing this again, but we're going to do it short and sweet. And hopefully it's going to be the highlights of our conversation uh, today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but thank you so much for, for doing it again. I really appreciate it. And That's I'm sure, more than welcome. sure our listeners will too. So let's start off with you maybe giving some background on your military career so um back in a long time ago uh i joined the army um just after leaving school i suppose mm-hmm. um although i was a little bit late I was, um i was about 20 years old when i when, uh, when i got in mm-hmm. um i did all the usual things so you know i did my basic training my phase two training and i trained to be a, a combat medical technician or a combat medic and then I did the normal sort of operational tours. I went to Bosnia a couple of times. Um, in 2003, I went to the invasion. You know, I went to the invasion in Iraq, and then promptly upon my return to the UK, I was deployed back out again to the Congo. Um, I then um, worked with the territorial army, or as they were called down at the reserves for a while, as a permanent staff instructor. Um, I also tra- helped train recruits. So I was a recruit instructor as a corporal and a sergeant. And then um, after going back into the sort of field army, um, um, I was deployed uh, to with a, with a medical unit down in the south of England. And we found ourselves being sent out to um, Afghanistan in 2009. Really, really short sort of summary of what I got up to for about 13 years in the army. Uh-huh, yeah, so quite varied, lots of different places, different roles within them as, as well. And then, so you kind of got us up to 2009, and I know that's when there was a huge turning point in your life. So if you would be happy to share what, what happened in 2009. Yeah, I mean, the first sort of turning point, I suppose, was was uh, me getting married on the yes. 1st of August in 2009. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me and my wife had a, an amazing, you know, a lovely day with friends and family. We had our honeymoon in Kenya. Um, nice. And then, you know, uh, we had two months together, I suppose, and then I was, then I was, uh, I found myself in Afghanistan um, on the twenty seventh of September two thousand and nine. And sort of initially, my job was to stay in Camp Bastion and work from from the HQ, um, from the headquarters place. Um, and I'm not really quite sure what I'd have been doing there, but it would have been sort of deploying medical assets out onto the ground, which would have been helicopters to to pick up injured uh, civilians or Taliban fighters, or more often than not, you know, sort of um, UK um, uh, service personnel which had been wounded, injured, or, or were sick. 
Mm-hmm. So that was, should have been my job, although they needed more medics on the ground. So I was deployed out to a place called um, PB4, or Patrol Base 4, um, which was about 40 kilometres um, southeast of uh, Camp Bastion. Um, you couldn't drive out there. You had to, you know, we had to get a flight out there. Uh, there was no ro- roads that we used. We didn't have any vehicles. So, um, you know, all our patrolling was conducted on foot. Um, it was a really sort of Spartan existence. Uh, we were living in a compound which didn't have any electricity or running water. Um, it was surrounded by sort of, I don't know, eight, nine, ten foot high walls around it. Um, and we lived and slept and ate and worked from that location. Um, and our main job was to to provide security for, for that little village that we were in and um, patrol it and just sort of show our presence and um, where we could to help you know locals with small tasks that they needed completing. Um, and, and, you know, that's what we did, although it was a very dangerous place to be in. Um, the Taliban were trying to exert their influence in that area. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it was our job to, to protect ourselves and, and protect those that we were there to, to support. So, I mean, I've been out there for probably about, um, you know, a good month. And I was, I was getting into the swing of, of working out in, in, in kind of those conditions. Um, and it was the 26th of October, 2009, which really kind of like changed changed my world, I suppose. Um, and I remember being sat on my, on my uh, camp cot um, the previous night and uh, I, had a, 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 I had a bit of a one-side conversation with my granddad because I felt there was something around the corner. I didn't know quite what it was, but I felt there was something that was going to happen. Um, and uh, I asked him to kind of look after me and, and look out for me. And, you know, I kind of went to bed thinking that he was there for me in some way. Anyway, I woke up really early in the morning. Um, we were going to leave under the cover of darkness on our patrol. Um, I grabbed my kit, my weapon, you know, my helmet and my boots and my rifle. Um, I went outside and, and got myself sorted out before I joined where we was going to meet at the, at the front gate. Uh, and I was one of the first round there. You know, I, I was just um, keen to get, um, you know, to, to make sure I was, um, you know, one of the first there. We formed up, so there's about 20 of us, and then we um, in a position to sort of leave the patrol base, although our interpreter decided that being in the sleeping bag was more important than going for a walk. And, um, you know, we had to wait for him to get himself sorted, so we left a little bit later than we should have done, really. And, and to be honest with you, I think that the fact that he was late probably saved my life, I think. Anyway, we left our patrol base, um, and off we, off we set. And I've got about 150 metres outside the patrol base when I activated an improvised explosive device. It threw me in the air. I landed on, on the floor on my head, and you know, which knocked me out. And I was unconscious probably about two or three seconds. And I woke up, um, and you know, I kind of knew that my life had changed forever. Um, amongst mm-hmm. the sort of the dust and the smoke and the flashes of light, um, I could see my injuries. Um, you know, my right leg was no longer there. My left leg was in bits. I damaged my arm and I had, you know, a couple of other injuries and um, I was kind of on my own. Um, and I wasn't a priority either at that point. Uh, they had to sort of secure the area. They had to sort of um, find out what was going on. Um, 
there was a firefight going on, so we were being shot at. So it was really, really sort of a busy situation to be in. And, and eventually it got to a point where they could they could come and, and, and find me. So uh, they sent out a guy, you know, with a, with a metal detector to clear a path towards me because they were worried that there's more um, sort of more bombs buried in between mm-hmm. me and them. Fortunately, there wasn't. Um, so uh, they, you know, they eventually got to me and realised that obviously I was the medic um, and they didn't really want to, spend too much time waiting out there where they were quite exposed um so they so they moved me with a stretcher they got me onto a stretcher and soon i found myself outside the patrol base uh lying on the floor and being treated and you know the guys on the floor whilst i was there they they saved my life there's no shadow of a doubt they absolutely mm-hmm. saved my life and i wouldn't be here chatting to you now if they hadn't done what they'd done um in those in, in those sort of um, in those minutes. Now earlier on, I mentioned that our, our interpreter had decided that being in his sleeping bag was more important than going for a walk. And and the fact that he was he was late, like I said, I think it saved my life because there was you know they put a call out for a Chinook or the local emergency response team to come and pick me up. Um, that was already in the air to going to pick up an Afghan national soldier that had been shot. Um, so if you know if um, if we'd gone when we're supposed to have gone and and, I, and I'd hit the the bomb then then I don't think I'd have made it back to the UK. Um, the fact that it was already in the air and coming sort of towards our location anyway, I think that made a huge difference. Anyway, the the, yeah, the Chinook landed and um, they carried me on to the Chinook, where I, you know I received more sort of cutting edge life saving um, intervention or medical intervention. Um, at that point, I thought my chances of survival had, had greatly increased. Um, however, I, I was trying to look for someone, anybody that I knew really, because all the medical staff that you know were were working out there were my friends and colleagues, and I was kind of looking for someone I knew. Uh, I wanted to pass a message on to on to my wife if I didn't make it, mm. um, if I didn't make it back to the UK. And, I never found that person to speak to, so perhaps that was something else that kept me alive, looking for that person. Anyway, mm. we, you know, we landed, and I remember um, sort of being carried off the off the Chinook um, onto a waiting ambulance, and I soon found myself outside the emergency department waiting to go in. And um, it was really interesting because obviously it was pitch black dark, and I felt quite sort of safe and. Um, you know, looked after in the, you know, cocooned almost in the night. Um, as soon as I went into into um, the emergency department, the the really the bright lights and really sort of um, changed everything, and I started to feel really exposed and and um, and my grip on on my own survival was starting to slip, so I couldn't really hold on to the pain anymore, mm. and I just kind of wanted to go to sleep really. And I remember the medical team, they kind of like descended on me like a team of locusts and started <laughs> treating me and checking my bandages mm-hmm. and taking off bits of kit that I didn't need anymore and preparing me to go in for surgery. Um, and at that point, I was sedated and whisked through to to see the, to, to meet my surgeons, I suppose. And after that, I can't really remember anything right. until I woke up on the Friday morning. Right. It's, I mean, it's just an extraordinary story. And I think it's very difficult for, for most people to imagine, but you, you tell it so vividly that you can kind of get a picture. And um, I mean, it's just, 
in- incredible what you have been through. And I guess what I'm really curious to know, because we're fast forward to, two th- that was 2009, and fast forward to 2020 now, how... Um, what was the process? What ha- what happened from there? So I know you you've had multiple surgeries over the years, but if you could just talk us through, kind of what happened next. I found myself um, at Sydney Hospital in Birmingham, mm-hmm. uh, which no longer exists. Right. Um, and I was there for about five weeks. Um, I was kept sedated um, for about five days, and like I said, I was woken up on a Friday, mm-hmm. um, and I was greeted by my wife and my family. Um, and then for me, it was, it was, you know, I had, uh, I had, well, three lots of surgery that first week. Um, and then probably about another, uh, th- three lots of surgery before I left. Um, and it was all quite big, painful surgery. Mm. Um, when I left hospital, I was kind of in a position where I was pain free and I could sit up and I could kind of look after myself. Um, Although I had sort of like plasters on sort of individual wounds, um, I didn't have bandage or bandages on or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And I soon found myself down at um, Headley Court in Epsom, which was really at the start of a quite a long, um, uh, a long journey, I suppose. Um, I was quite fortunate, you know, I had a, a bit of a bet with my consultant, and I said <laughs> to him that I'd be walking before Christmas, um, right. and I did so. So less than two months after I'd been injured on the 17th of December 2009, I was up on my prosthetic legs. Wow. Although, um, you know, I wasn't really strong enough to walk on them properly. I was taking a few steps forward and, you know, I was in a set of bars and a set of parallel bars and I mm-hmm. wasn't allowed to take my legs home. Um, but for me, it was, it was an idea of where I could get and, and mm-hmm. what the future hopefully looked like for me. And then heavy court, you know, I was there for about four and a half years on and off and mm-hmm. it was a cycle of, so prosthetics and learning to walk, physiotherapy, uh, exercise, adventure training of, of some sort, um, falling in love with, you know, back in love with activities that we mm-hmm. had done before, um, loads of different challenges as, as we got stronger. Um, and in, in sort of intermittent with lots of surgery. So I was operated on in, in 2009, 10, 11, 13, um, and 17. And, you know, by right. 2017, I was out the army. But, um, yeah, it's, heavy court was a, was a kind of a long process of many different things. It wasn't just me in a hospital bed. It was, yeah. it was, uh, it was a mixture of different things. And it was kind of like, um, you know, um, going around in circles a little bit because you'd, you'd be up on your legs, you'd be learning to walk, you'd be getting on with your life, but then you'd need more surgery. And then that whole process of getting back on your legs again and getting stronger again would start again. And, you know, that it went up and down kind of in a, in a circle like, like that for, you know, for, for many years. But, you know, it was a really great, uh, it was a great environment to be in. And I was amongst lots of people that were similar to me that had been right. injured. Um, and I was, you know, I was very fortunate to be there. Right, because I was, I was going to ask, actually, because Headley Court is, am I right in thinking it's a specialist unit for military personnel who have yeah, been is. injured? When is it was that... open, so mm-hmm. it closed a couple of years ago, um, mm-hmm. and now that whole facility has moved up to Stanford Hall, but um, it's, um, 
it was set up as a rehabilitation you know center for right. all sorts of differently injured or wounded or sick personnel right so no, they're not all combat injuries they could be training injuries mm-hmm. so um you know if you're doing on a training exercise and you've fallen over broken your leg um you'll find yourself there soon enough if you come off your motorbike and taking a leg off or damage yourself, you know, um, there, mm-hmm. but, you know, there's all sorts of different reasons why you could end up there. Um, but the, the idea is to get you back in into a position where either you're going to leave the armed forces or you're going to uh, return to, to work in a, in a, you know, in a normal fashion and carry on with your, with your job. So, um, yeah, it's an incredible place to be in. And like I said, I was surrounded by people just like me. Right. And I kind of wonder how that shared experience, having people around who were similar, helped you, I don't know if adjust is the right word, but adjust and adapt. Well, and, on, really, yeah. I suppose is so, you know, there was a really big, you know, there was a spectrum of us kind of, mm-hmm. you know, you could have, and I say this very flippantly, but you might have only, only and it's a huge thing. You might mm. have only lost a leg. You might have lost an arm. You might have lost two legs. You might have lost a leg and an arm. You might have lost two legs and an arm. Mm. Um, but it might not be just those injuries that you're carrying. You know, there could, you know, you could have there could be other injuries going on there, which really is stopping you from um, progressing as in the same way that maybe other people did. So. Um, it was always the luck of the draw in a way of, 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 of what your injuries were and actually whether or not you could walk again on prosthetic right. ends and, and not everybody could. Right. Um, it was just the way the cookie crumbled for some people, unfortunately. Um, but being surrounded by people of all sorts of different sort of injuries and, and wounds, um, you couldn't really sit back on your laurels. Uh, you couldn't really sit back and feel sorry for yourself. You just had to get on with it. Because there was always someone worse off than yourself. Um, so, you know, and if you did start feeling sorry for yourself, you just got to take in the mickey out until you were, really? until you were, you were all right again. <laughs> you were back in the room. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. Is that kind of like the, the military banter that you were kind of familiar with in terms of like you're saying about taking the mickey? Is that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was relentless. It was relentless. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, uh, and it was funny as well. It was just, it was just amusing, um, and <laughs> I mean, it, it might not have worked mm. so much so well in other environments, but it worked for us. And um, right, it was one of those things you had to be there. You know, yeah. you can't almost relive it again. You can't make it up. It sure. has to be lived. And um, when we get back together again, you know, we kind of reminisce about some of the stuff we got up to, and, and uh, it always brings. Uh, a smile to uh, our faces and and sometimes you know wow we actually did that (laughs) yeah I I can believe it as well I think sometimes in the most kind of peculiar instances you find moments of like of of fun and levity and I I I don't know I, I I can just imagine that experience and where you have that shared experience of being personnel and you have a way of being with with each other and your own ways of supporting each other I can see that being like there, there being moments of fun and and banter with it within all of that and so and you're kind of saying about how you reflect with people who have been through that with still now is that the Kazivat club it's yeah. am, am I right um, in thinking that mm-hmm. yes yeah, so the Kazivat club is uh 
is, is, is being created to... It's actually to replace the guinea pig clubs. The guinea pig club were a bunch of Second World War pilots that were injured um, and usually burnt um, and were treated um, at Queen Victoria Hospital down in East Grinstead. Uh-huh. Um, and they made a club because they were literally guinea pigs and, and that's where modern-day plastic surgeries come from, um, from sort of stuff that was done to them. For burn injuries. Yeah, for, yeah. for burn injuries. And, and, and then, so... Two of the guys, a bloke called David Henson and uh, David Wiseman, they came up with the idea to create this club called the Kazivat Club, so the Casualty Evacuation Club. Right. And sort of to be a member, you have to receive a combat injury in either Iraq or Afghanistan um, and be medically evacuated back to the UK. Um, and sort of the, the sort of the, the three pillars that support the club are the idea that you know. Um, we need to keep in contact with each other um, to support each other um, as we carry on living. Um, we put ourselves forward for research, mm-hmm. um, which we think is really important um, because a lot of us are unexpected survivors. And to keep, um, I suppose, the learning a secret or the potential learning a secret would be disingenuous. So. It's important for us to give back in that way. And the last bit is, you know, um, we're always going to raise money for a civilian charity that takes our interest. And and at the moment, I think we're raising money for the uh, Make-A-Wish Foundation. So, um, yeah, those are the sort of the three pillars that support the club and, and how we're moving forward. Yeah, brilliant. And I remember being really taken with that point about how it was important to you to support research from when we spoke before and that um yeah just really stood out to me because I think it's a very generous perspective um and we'll come I want to go on to speaking about research obviously because we're talking about um the work and your involvement with the unit study and um your involvement in the research there before we get there I want to circle back on something because I'm really interested and I remember from when we spoke before about when it, as part of your journey to like physical recovery and things, you you had a goal of doing things that you had done before in terms of um, adventures or like physical pursuits. And I wonder if you could talk about that um, again with me, because I, I thought yeah, that was so really, was really in, lovely. When I was in Sanyak Hospital, um, a nurse came up to me and said... Um, to try and find three good things from one bad thing. And mm-hmm. as I was sat there or lying there and just daydreaming to myself, I thought, I thought, no, it can't be three, it's got to be five. <laughs> so initially, it was the idea that as a result of this bad thing that's happened to me, I want to find five good things. Mm-hmm. Now, those things initially were really small. So they could have been watching Homes Under the Hammer. Um, it could have been um, getting a visit from one of my friends. It could have been the rite of passage that we had to pass to go down to the Country Girl, which is a pub um, just outside of Selyoke. And, and, and once we got there, and once we were allowed to go there, things were really looking that we were going to sort of leave and move on. Uh-huh. So my job was to find these these things and, and actively go and search them and find them, which obviously meant that, um, that I had to do something. And then my job in my own head was to, to kind of make those things bigger and bigger and bigger and more... I don't know, sort of spectacular for whatever, you know, I can't think of the right word, but they had to be um, an improvement on the last week. Right, right. 
And so since, you know, leaving hospital, you know, I've done sort of a cycle rides in northern France and then a group of us decided to do the race across America. Mm-hmm. So a team of eight of us, which were all disabled, um, four of us didn't have any legs um, and we um, rode a relay across America. Mm-hmm. Um, so we wow. started in San Diego <laughs> and ended up in, in um, Annapolis in Maryland and we we covered 12 different states. We cycled 3,051 miles. We climbed over 100 over a hundred uh, thousand meters um seeing sort of the east coast and the west coast and the bits in the middle was an incredible experience and seeing mm-hmm. the, sort of the two different sides of america um and anyway we you know we cycled it in seven days seven hours and 38 minutes um and i almost think i'd like to have done it a lot slower just so <laughs> we could see more of the country right. um and perhaps next time i'll go in a car um but what an amazing experience, you know, and, and we all enjoyed it. And then since then, I've, you know, I've got involved in other things. So I've parachuted, yeah. I've done triathlon. And then really what I love now is, is something that's, a, I suppose, a little bit easier um, is open water swimming. And mm-hmm. the longer the distance, um, I enjoy in the summer. And then in the winter, I'm doing um, cold water sort of swimming. Yeah. Um, yeah. And this year, I tried to do the ice mile, but it just wasn't cold enough in the water. So, uh, yeah, that's pretty much what I've been up to, I suppose. <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine the water not being cold enough well, in open swimming. Below four degrees, no, five degrees. Below five uh, degrees, oh. Yeah, and um, it got close to it, but just not close enough. And I, I ended up doing the um, uh, the ice um British Championships which was in Stanford uh um Lido up near um uh, in Gloucester. Um, uh-huh. and uh yeah great fun. Um it's really yeah again and just a it's just something different. Yeah. And what I like doing the reason why I like doing these things is because actually they all might sound like almost impossible. But I, everything I try to do, I think to myself, like, can anybody do this? So if you can swim, then anybody can do, that anybody can spend some time in the cold water. They might not be able to do a mile. <laughs> they might not, you know, might only be able to do 500 metres or 250 metres, but everybody can do it. Uh, last year, in fact, sort of two years in a row, in a row I swam uh, Wet Lake Windermere, uh, oh, which yeah. is an 11-mile swim. Um, and... When I was swimming it, I was thinking to myself, and, and at sort of key stages throughout, throughout that sort of event, I wanted to ask myself the question, could anybody do this? And I still feel the answer is yes. As long as you can swim, <laughs> I think if you could swim three miles or even a mile, and with the correct training, anybody could swim that, anybody could swim the, uh, could swim late, late wind in there. Well, <laughs> it's not just about like, oh yeah, I'm doing an event and it's impossible mm. to do, and therefore nobody else can do it. I like to think, well, could anybody else do it? And if I can do it, I think that most other people can do it. I mean, I, I definitely think it's a case of mind over matter. And I think rather you than me swimming up in water that's five degrees sounds a bit too chilly for me. And I, and I like outdoor swimming. But it's, a, it's, I mean, it's phenomenal with the, the bits that you've been doing. And, um, and I, can, I see the, the appeal of having the goal and the, you know, kind of almost it feels like, why not? Like... It kind of stems from two yeah. points, really, I suppose. One, um, I usually do it for charity. Right. Um, so there's a, 
a reason, you know, for me to get out of bed and train mm-hmm. every day. Uh, and then the second reason, I suppose, is, you know, I've got three children now and uh-huh. um, I want to show them that their dad isn't just, you know, because they never knew me as a person with legs before. Right. I just want to show them that, you know, it doesn't matter in what condition you're in, you can still go and do something outside and, and be in the fresh air um, and raising your heart rate a little bit. And I think it's really important to do those things. Yeah, and I guess it's like just being whoever you want to be and, and really thinking about how to be flexible about moving or navigating barriers, right? Um, yeah. Um, and I guess one of the things, again, to kind of come back onto our conversation before, we've spoken about a couple of different things, so the, the sports and adventure and then the support system in terms of building resilience. And re- resilience is something that I'm really interested in and how people find that and I think you've got buckets of it and I think especially given the the current climate and circumstances we're in I think lots of people could learn lessons on on resilience or have something to take away so I just wondered before we move on is there anything you would add to what has helped you well another little gem yeah. whilst I was lying in my hospital bed was um and it was a question there was no sort of emotion attached it was just uh-huh. purely a question that I sometimes used to ask myself, and the question was, why me? And mm-hmm. then, if you keep on asking that question, the only answer is, well, why not me? And as soon as you get to that point in in your journey of acceptance, well, why not me? Then you can move on. Um, because the, the question, oh, why me, is actually uh, almost implying that it shouldn't be you, it should be somebody else. But then the situation you're in, you would never wish on anybody if it is a bad situation or right. a, a painful situation. You wouldn't want to wish it on anybody. But um, So once you can get to that point in time and say, well, why not me? Then actually it's quite liberating and it it, it, it can help you move on. And it mm. helped me move on anyway. Yeah, I I really like that. And I again, I think it's a really generous way of, of thinking. And I think that kind of generosity is something that, it's so valuable in, in in thinking about resilience. So yeah, thank you. That's a great a great gem. So let's now get to the unit study and yeah. and the the topic of research that they're focusing on. So I know you're really kind of instrumental in in helping support the team and working out lots of different pieces within the research design and interpreting the the data and so forth. But I wonder if you could answer this. So why, for you, do you think the units study kind of so focusing on that psychological impact of scarring and and perhaps a change in appearance as a result of a incident within the military is important for to you or to other veterans or well, military personnel? I mean, for a lot of this, it's not necessarily so. A lot of people obviously centre on the way something looks. Right. They're okay, that's important, and some of the guys do struggle with um, some of their the changes that they've undergone. Mm-hmm. But for a lot of actually, it's an improving it's an improving in functionality and mobility. Right. So if if a scar can be, um, it can be managed in a in a in a really in a in a good way, then um, it's only going to help someone's help someone's life um, and improve, you know, their well being. And I think most people instantly think that it's all to do with the physical and the way mm. you look. But it's not always along those lines. And I think that sometimes that's missing the point a little bit. 
Right. And I think virtuality will win over every day um, with how something physically looks. And that's kind of like almost the icing on the cake, I suppose, which I know is a part of the study and, and mm. um, you know, managing that side of things. But, um, you know, I think that uh, getting to a point where um, improvements can be made the way things work, I think that, that's, the, that's the end goal, I think. Right, right. And, I mean, out of curiosity, do you think that has, um, that's influenced by gender? Yeah, absolutely. And perhaps that was, um, perhaps, you know, perhaps that was unfair of me looking at it purely from my point of view and the male Mm -hmm. point of view. Right. Um, or, I mean, I I wouldn't say that's, it's, um, uh, it's completely necessarily true with everybody. And, And of course there's, you know, there's there's men that will will be suffering in um, in one way or another. You know, with what's happened to them physically. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think you are you are correct there. I think having the type of injuries you know that we've had, um, uh, you know, being female, I think it I think it it could um, cause a lot more uh, psychological sort of um, damage. And, and and I'm not trying to second guess what somebody else is thinking, but um, mm. that's my guess. Yeah, and I I'm I'm sorry I put you on the spot there, but I was just as you were talking, no, I, was just, as well. I was just thinking. And I was looking at it really purely through my yeah. own eyes and uh, and a male set of eyes really, which yeah. is actually not completely fair really. Um, yeah, what I'm thinking is in terms of like the the pressure that's put on women in yeah. terms of how they they look, and and maybe people don't expect women to be military veterans so then it might feel more unusual perhaps but just a thought as you were no, speaking it's spot on it's spot on you know um because you know one thing you know that does happen inevitably um particularly in the short term some you know the guys we put on weight um and then it was it was a job to to help manage that um mm-hmm. some guy some people are obviously more successful than others um and then you know if you try if you then add that to the fact you've lost a limb mm-hmm. now you're having two things that are completely um different about you one you used to be physical and and running around the place and doing this and that um and now you're, you're definitely a set of limbs or a limb and now you're putting on a bit a bit of timber that you didn't know before which you weren't expecting to yeah, so there's that adjustment period, right? Yeah. That you're like you're not used to it. So yeah, completely. And and I know we spoke about this last time as well, but I wonder um if you can share again like what you wish people, so civilians I'm I'm thinking, were more aware of in terms of military personnel, veterans who have had an a, an altered appearance due to injury. Like what would you wish that they knew or more, were more aware of? Um I suppose there's a few things. There's mm-hmm. one, you know, I mean, most of most of the time the general public are brilliant, um, mm-hmm. but I do still get stared at, and, and initially it did bother me. Um, mm-hmm. And it doesn't, it doesn't so much anymore. I mean, sometimes I do get caught out. And you're like, you'd rather just not be in 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 that environment. Um, uh, I think also the fact that. Just because you can see one thing, that doesn't mean to say there's not anything else going on either. Um, you know, everything's got layers, isn't it? And um, 
regardless if you're missing limbs or not. But uh, I think, generally speaking, you, you just go mindful of of um, of of of, a, of the situation. That counts for everybody, really, and 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 including me for other people. Mm. Um, I suppose just not um, making assumptions about someone that's in front of you and and trying to just be kind. I suppose. Right. Right. Yeah. Com- completely. And I, I remember we talked about the staring before and there's something also that you said about um wearing shorts and like clothes and yeah. dress and how that plays in and again I wonder if you could share a little bit about that so you know, um, you know wearing shorts was just purely a lot easier for me and mm-hmm. it meant that I could take off my prosthetic limbs and put them on really easily um and then actually it was another veteran another guy um and uh he, he we were sat together and he said, I see you've got your, your sympathy shorts on again. I was like, you what? I, I said, and I asked him to explain what he meant by that. He said, well, you've got your shorts on so everybody can see you've got no limbs. And I hadn't really thought about it along those lines. Um, it was purely um, so I could manage myself and sort out my prosthetics and my legs if they got too hot. Um, and it, was, it just made no sense to me to wear trousers. Absolutely no, none at all. Um, and it's just something that I carried on doing, really. And, and for someone to then say that, when I really didn't think about it along those lines, just surprised me. Um, and then, and then I thought about it some more, and, and I thought, well, actually, if it gives someone an idea that I might need a little bit of uh, sort of room, or um, if I'm going to London, people tend to rush around the place, and mm. and if I didn't have my shorts on then I would probably get knocked over and then right. probably I would get sworn at and and told to move out the way but they may have not known it's not an excuse but they wouldn't have known that I didn't have any legs and I can't get out of the way so I suppose you know me wearing shorts gives people a bit of a warning that I I'm not moving right <laughs> if you if you're gonna go if you're gonna barge into me we're both gonna go down because I'm gonna grow older you right right so yeah is that like that visual visual cue I guess yeah, yeah. And, and so, okay, if, if someone wants to call them sympathy shorts, well, that's fine. But um, that really wasn't the reason why I wore shorts and wear and still wear them today. You know, it's just purely so I could sort myself out and and um, and, and manage my my stumps a lot, you know, easier than wearing mm-hmm. than wearing trousers. Right, right, for sure. Um, so this has been a really, uh, really insightful, interesting conversation. So thank you so much for doing it again. Before we finish, um, I have like one very last important question. So, yes. um, and you know what's coming, but we have at the Centre for Appearance Research a weekly uh, coffee morning. This now feels a very unusual dormant question, actually, because we're in lockdown. So uh, we're not currently having <laughs> coffee morning. But when lockdown is lifted and we're back in the office and you come and visit us at, at UE in Bristol, um what cake would you bring and why? Well, I love cake. Um, and we spoke about this last time. I do love cake. And I think I'll probably bring more than one because I think having choices is, is key. <laughs> nice. Definitely bring a carrot cake because it's obviously got one of your five a day in it, so it's healthy. Um, a chocolate cake, which obviously is important because that's got um, natural products and it again being chocolate. And then <laughs> something a little unhealthy i'd bring in a in a victoria sponge although it has got fruit in in the in the you know strawberries in it it's probably not as healthy as the other two so um 
Uh, I'm not fussy on cake. I'm not hugely keen on, on coffee cake, but anything else I'll take. Okay, brilliant. And I think I think that, that sounds great. Well, Sai, again, it's been a really insightful, interesting conversation. And I'm glad we got to have it a second time because I've definitely taken away new things with this second round of the conversation from the well, first. So yeah, thank you ever so much. Cheers. That's right. Have a great have a great day and cheers for listening. That was really interesting. And like we mentioned before, great that you got two chances to speak to him. Did you get any more like stories out of him? Any more deets? Yeah, you know what? I really did. I felt like I got some bonus information. And, and now I'm like trying to work out what he said in which interview because, yeah, lots of he's a, he's a really good storyteller and, and is very engaging to, to speak with and um, very uplifting as well. He's got a really nice perspective on things. And I really like the, the piece in when he talks about 2009 for him, that it's, it was such a crucial big year. And he starts that off by talking about in 2009, first and foremost, that's the year he got married. And later on in the year, that's, that's when that awful accident happened. So, but I, yeah, something that just like stood out to me. But yeah, definitely, definitely enjoyed speaking both times. And I, I think our listeners will appreciate the, the second run because the sound is so much better. No, no coffee machine in the background clanking. Um, anyway. As much as we do miss that, yeah, it's better to have a, <laughs> a clearer sound presence. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Can you imagine going back to a coffee shop now? Oh. If only. Like a, it's like a dream. Such a, I feel like such a treat when we're, we're able to do that again. Anyway, let's go straight to hearing from the units team. Uh, it's going to be really interesting to hear their perspectives and how what Sai has spoke about maps on to what the team is doing in their, their broader research. Definitely. Um, so to introduce the units team study here not here because I'm at home, but at car. Um, so in the team, we've got Mary, um, Vicky and Di, as well as Heidi, um, who are all members of the Centre for Appearance Research. And they also lead a number of other visible difference intervention studies at CAR. Right, exactly. So how it kind of works is that you've got Diana Harcott, who's the director of CAR, who's a co-chief investigator alongside Dr Heidi Williams, so they're the, the chief investigators of the project. And then Dr. Mary Keeling is a senior research fellow leading the project. And with Vicky Victoria Williams doing the research associate work as part of the project. So that's kind of how the team works. Um, and we're really fortunate because on the podcast today, we have a full house with the units team. I was able to catch up with them all on Zoom. So we have, uh, yeah, all four of them, Mary, uh, Victoria, Di and Heidi. Good to get the whole team. And it's Mary and Victoria's debut on the podcast as well to mention. So we'll give them both a proper introduction as we should. So Mary is a research psychologist specialising in research with military personnel, veterans and their families. So prior to coming to CAR, Mary's held postdoc positions at the King's Centre for Military Health Research at King's College London and also at the Centre of Innovation and Research on Veterans and Military Families in the School of Social Work at the University of South California. So she lived out there for, for some time. Big jump to come back to Bristol. Yeah, yeah, it's quite a contrast. Um, and then Bristol's great, though. Yeah, but less sun, that's the only thing. <laughs> yeah, true. And then we have Victoria, who recently completed a master's degree in health psychology 
at UWE, um, which she graduated with a distinction. Round of applause. Whoop. That's amazing. <laughs> so now um, works full time on the unit study. And previously at CAR, she contributed to research around patient and health professionals experiences of decision making around mastectomy. So before working at CAR, Victoria also worked in assistant psychology roles for the NHS, focusing on clinical health psychology and dementia. So lots of really cool angles there. Yeah, and fun fact, Victoria and I did our undergrad in psychology at the University of Bath together a few years ago now, and we also did the same placement together in Boston. We lived together with our mutual pal, Lisa Brighton, who's currently working on her PhD at King's. So lots of, lots of links there. It's great when that happens, when you like seem to take the same journey, yeah, or meet up in, in between. Um, so also Heidi, who you will have heard on the podcast before in our episode on acne and body image, as well as in both episodes one and episode two, um, lots of episodes actually. So she's a senior research fellow at CAR, a health psychologist and the joint programme lead of the Masters in Health Psychology at UE2. So Heidi leads the Visible Difference Intervention Stream research at CAR and more broadly her research involves working with individuals with a visible difference resulting from a skin or congenital condition, a traumatic injury or also as a result of treatment for disease such as cancer. So again lots of interesting things combined there. Yeah bro, and she's um, on your PhD supervisory team isn't she? She is indeed. I'm very fortunate to have her as a supervisor for my PhD too. So, <laughs> um, Lots of things going on. And then last but not least, we have Professor Di Harcourt, who is, of course, our director at the Centre for Appearance Research. So you would have heard Di on the podcast before, so speaking about breast cancer and visible difference and burn injuries. So Di's primary research interests are... Um, related to the impact of having an altered appearance so when your appearance changes so this could be the result of uh, a burn injury or from illness like cancer so that's her specialty and then as well as being the co-chief investigator on the unit study she also leads the program of visible difference research at CAR including the Pegasus intervention for women considering breast reconstruction and then with Dr Katrin Griffiths the development of a set of burn-specific patient-reported outcome measures. When you say it like that, it makes me realise just how much we do at CAR. Like, there are so many things that is broadly covered. It's amazing. Um, Completely. But this episode is on the unit study, so let's, let's hear more about that. Yeah, let's. Units team, welcome to Appearance Matters, the podcast. It's fun to have you on. Hello. Hi Nadia, it's good to be back. Great, so it's a bit surreal because we're doing this via Zoom, so I can see you all, but it's not quite the same as doing it in person, but thank you very much for, for giving the time. I've been really looking forward to talking about the work that you all have been doing. So as a bit of context, the unit study is a three-year funded project investigating the psychosocial impact of appearance-altering injuries on military personnel and their families. So maybe I'll start with you Heidi. Why is this important and how does it situate itself within the existing research? Thanks Nadia, yeah that's a good question. Well as you're probably aware 
One of the key objects at, objectives at CAR is to help individuals to face the common difficulties associated with looking different. So these typically include a loss of social anonymity, that's not being able to use public transport or socialise without attracting attention, managing the negative reactions that you can sometimes get from other people, so that includes inappropriate questions and comments, social and workplace discrimination, um, and in some cases, the challenge of making decisions around painful and ongoing treatment. And as you might imagine, not surprisingly, up to half of those affected live with the constant fear of being negatively evaluated based on their appearance. They can experience social anxiety, avoidance, isolation, and some of them have concerns around intimate relationships. And again, not surprisingly, we do have ex um, reports of individuals experiencing depression, anger, shame, uh, preoccupation with their um, appearance and in some cases PTSD and all of these can impact on relationships, aspirations and opportunities but of course not everyone struggles with these difficulties. Some individuals do very well, they may even thrive as a result so we're particularly concerned with identifying the factors, the processes that influence how well individuals cope with a visible difference. We don't have all the answers yet but in our largest study to date our research with those who have been affected by a range of visible differences in the general or civilian population suggests that there are key social and cognitive processes amenable to intervention that can predict the psychological and social well-being of individuals. So I'm thinking about social acceptance by significant others, satisfaction that individuals might have with their social support and the degree to which individuals invest in their appearance, the degree to which they fear negative evaluation and may compare their appearance to others. And it's these factors that we tend to target in our interventions and our support packages. However, this work is um, with civilian groups on the whole. What we don't know much about is the impact of having an appearance altering injury or experiencing it in the line of duty. So that's whilst preparing for or during military conflicts. I'm thinking about conflicts in Afghanistan, Iraq, Northern Ireland, and during the Falklands War. We do know that a substantial number of combat injured veterans have appearance altering injuries, for example, limb loss, scarring, maybe from burns or shrapnel. But research aimed at understanding the psychosocial impact of a changed appearance and the related support needs of these combat vets is very limited. Um, we've done a recent review of the literature, for example, and identified that only four small relevant studies with vets are available all outside the UK and there are no studies exploring the experiences of affected family members. So although it's limited, what evidence there is suggests that while military and civilian groups may have some shared experiences, for injured vets and serving personnel, the impact of military culture and related expectations is likely to present a very different, um, very different challenges and support needs. And of course, this affects the suitability of the interventions that we've currently got available. These are all based on civilian support needs. So clearly, we do need more rigorous investigations of the appearance related um, issues and support needs of those affected by conflict wounds and, of course, their families. If we don't understand what these are, we can't really develop effective interventions to help those that are struggling. Okay, wonderful. Thanks for all of that, Heidi. So, Di, I wonder if you can maybe give a more detailed overview of what the unit team are doing, what the aims, objectives of, of the work that you're doing over the three years. 
Thanks, Nadia. Um, so we're working on this project for three years and it's being supported by the Scarf Reed Foundation. And as Heidi referred to, overall our aim is to look at how we can provide appropriate but evidence-based support for the military community whose lives have been affected by an altered appearance. So first of all, what we wanted to do is to establish what research is currently available and review what literature there is in this area. So Heidi's mentioned already that there's actually very, very few studies in the field to date. So that was effectively looking, conducting a gap analysis of where we stand at the moment. And the next step was to conduct um, some qualitative research to get a really in-depth understanding of the experiences and support needs of military personnel, veterans and their families. And then we wanted to use those findings to inform a much larger scale survey. And for that, we want to look at to what extent are the factors and processes that we know predict adjustment to a visible difference in a civilian population, to what extent are those similar or different when we look at a population of people who have a background within the military and that's been the cause of their visible differences. So then we're doing this comparative survey of adults with and without a military background. And then after we've got all that information, we're going to be taking all that and looking at the current interventions that are currently available for civilian populations with a visible difference. And we can look at those and look at, well, to what extent might those be suitable for people with a military background? Or maybe we need to adapt what we've got available in order to meet their needs. Or it could be that we come to the conclusion that we need to develop some completely unique interventions that are specific to their needs because there may be some unique mm -hmm. aspects of this context that are different to what we see in the civilian population and um, throughout all of this one of the things i would emphasize is that we can't do this without the input of the people lived experience in this situation so we've got some advisory groups of um, serving of veterans and family members who have been affected and they are giving us our PPI, our public patient involvement mm -hmm. input all the way through and one of the ways in which they actually very much helped us right from the start is that it was one of those advisors who actually came up with the name units for the study right from the very beginning so they've been really key even from before we ever put in the grant application and they've helped us all the way through. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Thanks, Di. I didn't mm -hmm. know that that's where the, the name came from. To be honest, Nadia, we couldn't do it ourselves. We could. We were struggling. And then as yeah. soon as we went to some advisors, somebody came up with a fantastic name straight away. That's brilliant. And I know you're halfway through the, the project now. And Mary, was it last week you gave a really excellent presentation via Zoom to the whole of the team at, at CAR about the work that the units team have been doing, um, which I really enjoyed. It was really interesting. And there's like lots of things that you spoke about there and I think the what Di's been saying about the PPI, the patient public involvement is, was something that really stood out. But you also spoke about the interview study, so the first study that the team have been working on following the, the review piece and the gap analysis. Can you give an overview on who you interviewed and why and I guess what you're trying to find out from that first interview study? Yeah, thanks, Nadia. I'm pleased you uh, enjoyed my presentation. It was quite a new experience delivering a presentation over Zoom, so glad to hear it went well. So, yeah, so the interview study, I suppose, is being the large proportion of the work over the first sort of half of the study, so a year and a half into, into units now. 
And so there was three aspects to it. So interviewing 20 veterans, interviewing 20 family members and interviewing 20 serving personnel. So to date, we've interviewed all 20 veterans. We've interviewed 14 family members and we've interviewed just one of the serving personnel. But that's because you have to go through Ministry of Defence Ethics and um, that's taken a little bit longer. So focusing on the 20 veteran interviews that we did, 19 of those were male and one of them was female, which is kind of not surprising sort of based on the population that we're um that we're talking about the majority are from the army although a couple of them are from the RAF and a couple of marines and again that's quite representative of the service branches of the of the UK military and they were mostly injured during um operational deployments although a couple were actually injured during training for deployment and all but one of those were serving during the most recent conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, whereas one of them was injured actually during um, Northern Ireland in the early 1990s. Um, so the kinds of sort of injuries we're talking about is a vast majority of um, improvised explosive device injuries, as well as um, so that's IEDs, as well as rocket propelled grenades, so RPGs, and then gunshots, shrapnel and some falls as well. So um, as well as those veteran interviews of those 14 families, I interviewed 18 female spouses and five mothers. Um, so really, what we want to know is what are the experiences of these groups in terms of their injuries and their change to appearance. So qualitative research, these interviews are actually really good when we're investigating a sort of new area. And so it allows us to get really in-depth data so we can understand what is it like for these veterans to adjust and adapt to their changes to their appearance and what concerns or challenges they might have with their appearance and how that impacts on their overall post-injury recovery. And then determining if they've been offered any support or if they would like to have been offered any support, what that support might have looked like and what are the sort of support needs or unmet needs that exist. And the same with the families as well. So what's their experience um, of having a family member who's had a changed appearance due to a sort of combat injury and what support have they been offered for, for their own needs or what support might they need? Um, and so then moving on, we're also going to be thinking about that in terms of how that compares to the civilian population. We'll do that a little bit with the interviews, but that's really more what we'll do um, in the second study. Yeah, that's really interesting having the family involvement and their perspective and how that plays out as well. I really like that. So I spoke with Sergeant Simon Harmer a few weeks ago, um, and I know you've had a, a quick listen to our chat together. And I know that you all know him really well. He's on the steering committee for the unit study. Um, so he's informed in informing that research design and interpretation of the work that you're doing. So I'd really like to ask some questions in relation to what Sai was telling me about and and how this maybe relates to some of your early findings from the interview study and kind of from your expert knowledge in this area. Um, so perhaps to start, I, was totally, I, I really enjoyed speaking to Sai. He, um, he's got a really great outlook and is very, um, uh, I don't know, optimistic maybe and uh, really enjoyed, really seems to enjoy life. We spoke, we spoke at the Lido. Uh, and he was telling me about all the sports and adventures he has had since his injury from skydiving to skiing to race across America and something that kind of stood out that he was kind of saying that everything he had done before 2009 he's kind of repeated after since and uh, with, a, with the exception of potholing I think he told me and so I 
guess he, he was like saying about like just he likes the adrenaline rush which may be a common among military personnel but I wonder if you've found that in your work is it an important part of adjustment in coping to appearance altering injuries to kind of do some of these like kind of big goals and and maybe sporting activities yeah yeah Nadia I mean I agree size had a really um he's achieved an awful lot in his in you know in the in the activities that he does and but I wouldn't say within the interviews data that it's necessarily an adrenaline rush but certainly you refer there to having um, values and achievements and what we found in those interviews is that a lot of the military personnel who took part, the veterans, had been engaging in activities that gave them a strong sense of um, success and achievement. So those kind of life fulfilling activities. And a lot of them, that what they wanted to do is they were talking about having lived their life to the full, that kind of optimistic outlook, that sense of adventure, being socially connected to one another. Mm -hmm. They're all things that were really valued and important both prior to the injury and then also came a became a focus throughout their recovery as well. So what we can take from that is the importance of value-based living and also a lot of the things he was talking about we can relate to in terms of positive psychology. Those things have also come across in the civilian visual difference research that we've done. But it's really interesting when we think about it in a military context, how some things are um, very specific or unique. So, for example, some of the interviewees, a lot of them, the injury that they sustained had actually ended their military career. Mm -hmm. And so for those, finding a new way to feel a sense of purpose, a sense of achievement and mastery was really important part of their recovery. So the kind of activities that Sai was talking about, they can give opportunities to rebuild their confidence, mm -hmm. give them a new focus, perhaps rebuild their self-esteem. And all those are things are likely to sort of help them adjust and accept their changed appearance. And one of the things that was really interesting, I thought, in there was how Sai was definitely somebody who was focusing on the positives in life, even the smaller things. And that optimistic outlook, that, set, that somebody's optimistic disposition in life, that's something that we've seen in civilian research as well. So we're already trying, starting to identify how some of the factors that are coming through in the unit study are similar to what we found in previous research, but there are also some very unique aspects as well. Right, so there's, there's something in there about resilience, and I think I remember... Uh -huh. uh, Matt Ridley talking a lot about that with um, civilian populations in reference to appearance altering conditions that there's a lot of resilience in there and I, I wonder how the military background kind of adds to that resilience component um, I think it's quite interesting um, and then I guess on the topic of like the adjustment and coping I think something that came across with Sai that felt important was the role of peer support um, and he, we spoke a little bit about the Kazivak Club, which he told me how to say properly because I kept saying it wrong. Hopefully I've got it right now. Um, Mary, um, can you, uh, when you gave the presentation to the rest of the team, you also mentioned this in relation to social identity theory. And I wonder if you could say a little bit about that because I thought it was really interesting when you were talking about it before. Yeah, definitely. So anybody that talks to me will know that social identity theory is one of my favourite 
psychological theories um, and essentially social identity theory uh, suggests that a sense of who we are is very much grounded within the group memberships that we hold. So my family, my friends, my gender, maybe any sport teams that I'm um, involved in will form a, a part of who I am or my sense of who I am. And they help um, produce sort of feelings of pride, self-esteem, a sense of belongingness and help us to feel understood and accepted by other people that we value because we share, we have shared values. Um, and so being a, a veteran or an injured veteran is a social identity. And so extending from social identity theory is the social identity theory of social support. And essentially what that posits is that when we receive social support from those within our in-group, within our social, the group that we have a social identity, share social identity with, that support is more beneficial than, say, if we were receiving support from somebody outside of our, our, our out-group or not within our social identity. And so it's not surprising then that a group like the Kazibak Club, which is a, a group of, of people who have been injured during deployments and were Kazibak airlifted mm -hmm. out of that deployment um, for medical reasons. And that was um, for Iraq and Afghanistan um, eras of deployment. So all of the, the people in, in the Kazibak Club have had this shared experience. They're military, they've been injured in the military, they've been deployed to these very specific kinds of deployments. So by having those shared experiences, they have a shared identity, shared values in these shared experiences. And I guess in layman's terms, essentially, it just means that they get each other. Mm -hmm. They don't have to explain things. They're just ultimately just understood. Whereas maybe when they speak to civilians, like people like us who haven't had those experiences, there's maybe a sense we have to explain, although you could never really understand what I've been through because you've not been through anything like that. So these peer support groups, whether it be Kazibat Club or through any of the other charitable organizations that provide support for veterans, are just absolutely invaluable. Um, and as Sai says in the interview, the Kazakh Club actually provides so much more than that as well. It provides opportunities for other purposeful activity and also for helping out in research. And actually, I suppose we should say here a really big thank you to the Kazakh Club because they've been really, really um, supportive of our of the unit study and helping us in terms of recruiting um, participants as well. Yeah, fab. So I, I mean, I guess focusing on the the impact on body image and appearance, I think this is kind of as you're saying at the beginning that there wasn't there's not been a lot of work looking with this focus especially within military populations something Sai said was that he mentioned that having his scars heal well was more about functionality than his appearance so he wanted uh, so then he could like get on and carry on and do those like life-fulfilling activities um do you find this often to be the case i'm interested i know you there's only one woman that was interviewed within the the qualitative study uh, as, as a veteran but I wonder if the functionality aspect of it is something that's very linked to, to gender as well. Yeah so um, I think function was definitely something that came out in all of the interviews that actually um, having that functional recovery that physical recovery really was the priority and I think that when you think about the context of some of these injuries mm. uh, the, you know the life-changing injuries that you know there is a medical and a physical aspect which is going to come first but I think also we can think about or interpret it in terms of sort of positive body image in that actually there's more of a focus on what my body can do rather than how my body looks or how I perceive my body um, to look, which I think thinking of that resilience aspect that you were talking about before sort of comes out there. 
Um, I think that for many of the veterans that we spoke to, when they did, when they did sort of experience or talk about having appearance difficulties, they seemed to be sort of something that came out later. So once they'd gone through those initial stages of their physical recovery, that then maybe the focus shifted a little bit. Um, but yeah, as you say, we interviewed one female. And I would say in many ways, her experience was quite similar to the, to the, to the males. And that really um, the sort of main appearance challenge that they all experienced was the public attention. Mm-hmm. And so sort of how to deal with those unsolicited questions, with the staring um, and sort of feeling that you were no longer part of the normal, um, if that makes sense. But I'd say one of the things that set the female apart, one of her experiences that she shared, was in terms of sort of being perceived as an injured veteran. So a lot of the guys talk about how the public, when they see them because they're young and they have these particular kinds of injuries, often feel that the public immediately know that they must have been injured during military service. And for many of them, this is a positive feeling. It means that they can feel the sense of pride or it takes away the sort of, fear that they're being negatively negatively evaluated because they can maybe assume that they're having a positive evaluation because mm-hmm. people think that they've done this thing for their country. That's a more complicated thing than that. There's, it's not all positive, this sort of perception as a, as a veteran, but there is a very positive element to it. But the female said that she didn't get that benefit, that often she wouldn't be immediately perceived as an injured veteran because people don't immediately assume that a female with a prosthetic leg has served and that's how she's got her injury. So I think that was sort of one of the key differences with the female and the males. And then another thing that she spoke about was sort of clothes. And so for her, not necessarily then being able to wear some of the clothes that she'd enjoyed wearing before, such as skirts, because practically they would get stuck in her prosthetic. And actually she preferred to wear shorts or other kinds of sort of trousers because it was just easier from a very practical perspective. And there was a sort of a sense that maybe that was frustrating her at times that her clothing um choices are now restricted in some ways yeah that's that's interesting and i and i think even Sai was saying about preferring to wear shorts and i and from what i understand from what he was saying that that that's fairly common just because it's more practical but i guess that's interesting within the context of not being as self-conscious maybe about that because of that lens of how people might perceive him as a as a man wearing shorts with with a prosthetic leg that that might be like oh automatic assumption that it's that they they must have been in the military um we yeah. have that with a with a woman so it just adds that extra layer so that's that's really interesting um and i guess kind of related i think something that came up in in your presentation of the week mary was that and kind of how we've been talking over the course of this is how the change of appearance there's a, a bigger piece on how other people are reacting rather than the or the impact of how other people are reacting on the person themselves so um the concern of of parents of partners of the public um i know so, so i mentioned like children staring and um again i wonder how how much that's come through in your interviews and what other people have been saying about um the the impact of others on their appearance and then how that then maybe knocks on to to how they then feel maybe yes like i was saying um sort of 
public attention was the most consistently reported appearance-related challenge among the veterans that we spoke to. Um, and that for many of them, they felt that the impact of the public attention was more profound for their partners or their children or their significant others. And that actually many of the veterans had found ways that they managed to cope with that. So, for example, some of them spoke about having had developed a set story. So when people asked them unsolicited questions of sort of like, oh, well, what happened to you? They had a set story that they would tell, which would mean that they felt that they could manage any anxieties or any uncomfortableness by having this sort of rehearsed story but of course not all the families had that same story to tell so maybe they didn't have that same resource to draw upon um so yeah it was quite interesting we're in the process of analyzing the family interviews at the moment we've not finished that but that's definitely something that's come up in the family interviews as well so it's consistent both from the veterans and the families in terms of that um experience i think that um there was unfortunately some experiences of experienced stigma and mm -hmm. for some of the guys, especially when they'd had periods of time in wheelchairs or for some that were still using wheelchairs um, relatively often, people assuming that because they had a physical um, difficulty that they therefore also had cognitive or mental health difficulties and that the way that they were sometimes spoken to by sort of members of the public maybe like one story about sort of being in the airport or at a shop at a customer service desk and sort of being spoken to via their um, partner or child or what have you and sort of feeling that you know whilst most people probably don't make these assumptions there is still evidence that within the general population there are some incorrect assumptions about people who um, look different and have diverse appearances and I think um, I touched on it in his interview uh, in terms of maybe people needing to be a bit more kind and compassionate and thinking about other people. We can't always assume that we know what's happening for other people and that maybe by making a shift to a more community and civic focus, we can start to try and foster a more um, more better understanding of diverse diversity, especially including diverse appearances. Yeah, great. Thank you. And again, just really interesting and thinking about how for the the individual themselves the veteran who's got that level of resilience perhaps because they've got that story and because it's part of their experience and part of how they've become resilient is having that narrative and maybe it is harder for someone who's not been through all of that but is still related to that person so whether it's a, the partner or the parent or it's someone in that person's life that narrative isn't as clear perhaps or they've not had to go through that process of defining that narrative so strongly and building resilience kind of one step removed yeah something i also meant to say i guess there's something like a protective thing as well so one yeah. of the sort of things that we saw in the interviews was some of the family members acting as sort of a protector and right. so sort of feeling probably feeling that vulnerability for the other person or feeling that protection for the other person which the individual themselves it's protecting themselves already so it doesn't feel it if that makes mm -hmm. sense it's almost like experiencing it secondhand feels yeah. more diff more challenging somehow i don't know yeah yeah it's it's interesting just lots of things coming up that i've not really considered before or especially within this this group and i think something and we've kind of touched on it with with the clothing and the dressing and dicking on this topic with the, the wearing shorts and inside saying that he he does that for practical reasons it's just easier but then that can result in others who might not know him reacting differently or seeing, perceiving him differently or 
uh, that so you get the staring or you get the questions and then he mentioned someone kind of making a comment and it might have been an offhand comment but being like oh you've got your sympathy shorts on again and I thought that was really interesting in terms of that that was the perception and he said he hadn't really thought about it like that at, at all just really thinking about it from that practical reason but that's kind of interesting but I wonder if there's anything else that's come up in relation to how people feel about their appearance and then the the clothing that they're wearing or how dress kind of factors into this equation. Yeah, definitely. So we've sort of, when we were analysing the data, sort of almost called it the dress problem. And so it's actually multifaceted. There's lots of things about clothes, really, which seem to be or create additional challenges and one of them that a few of the guys spoke about was when you're invited to a formal event and there's a dress code Mm -hmm. and then feeling sort of anxieties or insecurities about not being able to meet that dress code because you know from a practical perspective you don't want to wear long trousers and actually a few of them spoke about when you have lost limbs Mm -hmm. that um, your body can overheat quite a lot because of then physiologically how the body runs and so actually by to wear a shirt, a tie and a jacket just is really uncomfortable because they get way too hot and sort of getting to this point where they would just ignore dress codes and turn up to sort of quite formal events in shorts and a t-shirt just because that's how they would feel comfortable. And for some of them, it seemed like they kind of, that was fine and they just felt quite confident in doing that. Whereas for others, they maybe felt more insecure. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, one of the guys or a few of the guys spoke a lot about sort of well now I can use my clothes as a way to express myself because maybe previously their stature their height their muscularity or what have you had been something that they valued in how people saw them but instead now used the way that they dressed as a way that people you know sort of saw them or to sort of show their personality I suppose via their clothes maybe more than they have done um, previously and it's interesting about what Cy was saying in terms of the his prosthetics um, being on on show with the shorts Mm -hmm. and what have you and someone making that comment Um, but a lot of the guys also did speak about how sometimes it's beneficial to have your prosthetics on show because when you're out and about especially if you're in London or on public Mm -hmm. transport it's actually not always that obvious if somebody is on prosthetics and wearing long trousers that maybe they need to sit down or need that additional little bit of space um, in terms of their access and and their ability to sort of move around and so by wearing shorts it kind of also helps show people Mm -hmm. that maybe can you just give me a little bit more space or a little bit more time to navigate Um, so yeah it's it's an it's an interesting one something I hadn't thought about before we did the interviews either Mm, yeah I think it 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 is really interesting and I think we've we've covered a lot and I think um, this feels quite different I think it's it's kind of outside of my realm so it's been very very interesting to learn more about this um is there anything I have missed from the work that you have been doing yeah so I think something that I thought would be worth mentioning and just expanding on what Sai mentioned about the support that he received from health professionals when um in kind of services was that as part of my master's degree last year I also conducted an interview study which was looking at health professionals experiences um, of supporting veterans with these kinds of appearance altering injuries um, kind of thinking about how they experience it how they're providing this kind of appearance related support at the moment and how they feel that that kind of support maybe could be improved mm-hmm. um, 
so what I found was that health professionals also noted, um, as we said before, public attention could be a challenge um, for veterans that they had spoken with previously. And also, like uh, previous research with health professionals, that one of the main findings from my study was that health professionals in general felt a lack of confidence and ability to bring up the top of topic of appearance with veterans. Um, in part, that was due to concerns about bringing up appearance maybe upsetting their service users, um, but also like Mary was discussing earlier, kind of around that social identity theory, mm. some of the civilian health professionals felt that they might not always be the ones that veterans would feel most comfortable to kind of open up to. Um, and as the kind of intention of our study is to create an intervention at the end of this, it's something that we might need to consider training or perhaps kind of conversation aids for health professionals to help them normalise that topic of appearance and also thinking about kind of providing that support afterwards. I think something else that we're considering in terms of our intervention support as well is also kind of thinking about the family of veterans with appearance altering injuries. So as Mary mentioned earlier, uh, we've also interviewed, interviewed partners and mothers of injured veterans. Um, we're still in the process of analysing that data, but we think it's really important to kind of think about their experiences and support needs as well. Um, and we hope that we'll be in a kind of position um, to be able to discuss that later this year as well. Yeah, that's really nice. I like how holistic uh, all of your work is in terms of thinking about all these different components. So, but before we go, um, I wonder if you can tell me, I know you've just started recruiting for your online study. Um, could you tell me what the aim is and who's eligible to take part? So we're, we're actually recruiting for two separate studies. Um, but I'll, So I'll differentiate between the two. Ooh. Firstly, yes, you're right. Uh, we've just launched our online questionnaire study and that's to um, to get some quantitative data that can confirm some of the important factors that we're identifying in this the interview study the qualitative study so we can confirm that um, we are targeting both civilians as well as veterans so we're hoping to recruit 200 civilians with similar appearance altering injuries, so scars again, limb loss from burns, sporting accidents, um, injuries from car or cycling accidents, any injury really, of any accident of any kind that's changed appearance. And as well as that, we want 200 veterans with appearance altering combat injuries. Um, so we're hoping that we'll have 400 in to mm -hmm. total. And actually Sai's been, um, has worked with us already to develop a really snappy and quite amusing advert. I think you've seen it already, haven't you? Yeah. Um, to attract the veteran population. Um, so that's the online study. Mm -hmm. As well as that, we're also wanting to recruit um, uh, serving um, personnel so we've already got our study exploring the experiences of veterans we want to know about the experiences of those who with appearance altering combat injuries who are still serving so we again similar injuries scars or limb loss so that study is also um, available for those who'd like to take part for serving personnel with appearance affecting combat injuries okay brilliant two two really important studies there and that can then really help shape what what you're doing next in terms of intervention design absolutely it's good for us to compare the experiences of those two groups to identify the most appropriate interventions for our um, key military population amazing well and um, this has been really informative i know our listeners are going to really enjoy it 
um, and hearing all about all of this. And I definitely would like to follow up with a part two, maybe when you've got all your results from those two studies, that interview study with serving personnel and the online survey as well. So thank you all very much, Heidi, Di, Vicky and Mary. Thanks, thank Nadia. Thank you. Thanks, thanks, Nadia. That was great. And as we said, it was awesome to hear from the, the whole of the units team and perspectives from, from each individual. And also thanks to Sai and the units team for, for joining us. It was lovely to hear from them both. Yeah, and probably a double thank you to Sai for, for speaking to me twice. I really appreciate that. Um, but before we go, if you're interested in learning more about the, the units team and what they're working on, they they do really well as a team with their social media accounts. So they've got a Twitter account and an Instagram account that we can link to in the show notes. And they include lots of pictures and, and commentary about what they're doing as part of that research process. So they like share updates and kind of bits and pieces that they're working on. So you can really f- follow that research journey with them. And it's, I recommend looking at their accounts if, if you're interested. I agree. Very useful insight. And they also have very high tech um and great recruitment videos. Um, in fact, the most recent one for the online survey that they have currently up and running, you'll you'll see Simon's featured, Sai is in there. Yes, um, and you don't want to miss that because there are some very fun features within that. Um, I'm not gonna say give away too much, but all I'll say is that banana phone kept me laughing for days. <laughs> I love that, it's a spoiler, but it's a little tease. Go watch it and check it out. <laughs> yeah, and um, if you can participate in their research, if you're eligible or if you can share share their, their studies, they're recruiting for the next couple of months, I think, for that online survey. So um, it'd be great to have more people contribute. Um, and then I think that's it for, for this episode. So please do join us next time. And in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. It only takes a minute and helps other people find the podcast. Definitely. I will be doing that once I listen to a bunch of episodes again. (laughs) No, I'm joking. I already rated it five stars ages ago.